My name is Debbie Chang. My pronouns are she, hers. I'm here in the traditional lands of the Piscataway people, and I'm here representing the Asian Pacific Action Team, which meets on the fourth Thursdays. I also serve on CCL's Climate and Environmental Justice Action Team, third Wednesdays, and I'm co-leader of the Washington, D.C. chapter. It is my sincere pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker today, Reverend Dr. Harold Durrell Briscoe. Dr. Briscoe is an author, speaker, pastor, and public theologian. He focuses on the intersectionality of race, religion, history, and power. He's husband to Tracy and father to Luke, Noah, Amelia, and Ella. Doel graduated from the University of North Florida, where he earned his bachelor's degree in political science and history. At the George Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University, he earned a master's degree in public administration with a concentration on urban planning. Dorel worked in local and state government for five years across Florida, Texas, and Louisiana. He also taught at the university level as an adjunct professor teaching public administration, management, and leadership to undergraduate students. While teaching, Dorel pursued and was awarded a master's degree in theological studies at Liberty University. Dorel finished his Doctor of Ministry degree at Duke University in 2017. He's author of the best-selling book, There's a Storm Coming, How the American Church Can Lead Through Times of Racial Crisis. Thoreau is presently working on a PhD in history at the University of Leicester in the UK. Um, his dissertation on the organization, operation, controversy, and impact of President Harry Truman's 1947 Committee on Civil Rights. Last but not least, Reverend Briscoe is currently the lead minister of the 6-8 United Methodist Church in Durham, North Carolina as well as university chaplain and adjunct professor at William Peace University. Please help me welcome Darrell Briscoe. Well, thank you, Debbie, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to be here. I am so privileged, so honored to be here. And I just wanna say thank you before I get started. Thank you for the thankless, uh, tireless work that you do uh, to ensure that we live in a planet and in a, in a great thing that you all do, the volunteers, the activists, the media, everything, it matters, and I am grateful. So again, my name is uh, Dr. Harold Durrell Briscoe. I use he, him pronouns, and I live on historic Eno tribal lands, today known as uh, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, as Debbie said, I'm a husband, 10 years uh, to uh, my lovely wife, Tracy. We have four children, two boys, two girls, uh, uh, Luke, Noah, Amelia, and Ella, eight, seven, five, four. I'm tired. <laughs> so thank you for allowing me to be here and to be uh, to dress up and to address you all today. <clears throat> I'm also the university chaplain and professor of religion. Uh, at uh, in history and American studies at William Peace University. And in 2020, I wrote a book uh, entitled, There's a Storm Coming. It's based from my doctoral thesis at Duke University, which was essentially climate change adaptation, natural disaster mitigation and prophetic religion as a model for congregational leadership during times of racial crisis. Uh, it was published three days after George Floyd was murdered. Uh, and so it means a lot to me and climate change and adapting and building resiliency, that type of work 
has meant a lot to me for years. Before ministry, I was in public policy working in Florida and Louisiana and Texas, focusing on housing policy, but also climate change adaptation. Uh, I was inspired to go into public policy after Hurricane Katrina. It was a seismic event in my life. I didn't live on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. I didn't live in past Christiane, Mississippi. I didn't live in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. I was from, and at the time, living in Florida, and which, of course, is no stranger to hurricanes, right? Hurricane Katrina formed on my 20th birthday, August 23rd. 2005. And on August 29th, it made landfall and it was devastating. Over 1,830, I'm sorry, 1,836 fatalities, $100 billion worth of damage. Coastal communities across Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama were just wiped out. Nearly 80% of the great American city of New Orleans was underwater. Hurricane Katrina demolished New Orleans, New Orleans 17 years ago, and it's a grim anniversary. And, you know, we know the story about how these massive earthen levees dissolved and concrete flood water of walls toppled over. But my friends, it wasn't just the winds and the waves that did the damage. No, no, no. The real culprit was the erosion of thousands of square miles of wetland, marshes, and swamps that had once provided a natural buffer to the city's coastline from the ocean. And these coastal wetlands had been badly tattered and decades of human, from decades of human damage. If these wetlands would have been intact, if they had been protected by our federal government, in the immortal words of Prince Thorin Oakenshield, Son of Thrain, Son of Thror, from Middle Earth and the classic literary treasure we know as The Hobbit, written by J.R.R. Tolkien. In the words of Thorin, had the aim of men been true that day, much would have been different. Those wetlands would have most likely absorbed much of the surge of water that Katrina pushed up from the Gulf of Mexico. Hundreds of miles of navigation channels cut by the Army Corps of Engineers for more than half a century through the wetlands and maintained by levees have torn those wetlands apart. So a thousand more miles cut by the industry, the oil and gas industry, redirecting and rerouting the Mississippi River. Like many other systemic issues during that horrific event when Hurricane Katrina made landfall. People began to use brown and black pathologies to blame brown and black suffering. And when that happened, I remember the only thing that people, folks in my church were talking about was how those lazy folks down there just didn't want to get out in time. Never mind the poverty, never mind the systemic racism, and never mind the decades of devastating climate impact of dredging and redirecting the Mississippi River to bolster a greedy gas and oil industry. But see, that's the problem. And that's what I want to talk about today. The tendency to focus on individualism, this kind of hyper-individualistic lens that we see the world through. You know, I was raised in modern white evangelicalism. So much of evangelical theology focuses on the individual relationship to God and first, first, and then community, second. 
I've been a Christian for 24 years. And I've never heard a sermon series on the need to care for creation. I've never heard a message from the pulpit that talks about our responsibility to be faithful and just stewards of the environment in which we live. And I've never participated in a Bible study that talks about the beauty of the interconnectedness of all living things. I've never gone to Sunday school that taught on the fact that salvation isn't just about getting me to per- getting me to the pearly gates to meet St. Peter, but also includes the just distribution of this planet's resources among all its inhabitants. You know, the vast majority of churches today are not ecological. The Sunday sermon is not about the flourishing of God's whole creation. More often than not, it's about the care and comfort of human individuals. The gospel, the the good news, is usually preached in a way that assuages human needs and feelings. Ecological matters are seldom seen as part of the church's central message. Unfortunately, folks, we're experiencing a privatization of religion that leads to a triumph of public greed. And I, like millions of Americans, have been taught this dominion perspective, this dominion theology. The basic belief that God wants man to rule over all nature. This idea that humans are in charge of the world on behalf of God. And Christians with a literal interpretation of scripture believe that this gives humans the right to use the world's natural resources for their own benefit, for their own consumption and greed. The sad reality is, my friends, that there are certain faith perspectives and theologies that are perpetuating suffering towards individuals, towards our climate. And as I've learned about creation care, as I've listened and studied environmentalists, activists, climatologists, scientists, I've realized that as a Christian, I have a responsibility to do more than change hearts. I have a responsibility to examine the systems that create the oppression in the lives of other individuals. We have to remember the systems that we're fighting and working to dismantle. A system of deforestation that permanently removes trees for timber, fuel, construction, or manufacturing. A system of animal agriculture that breeds, births, raises, and kills billions of animals each year. The vast majority of whom whom are born, live, and die in abject misery. A system that liberally uses herbicides to combat weeds, pesticides, and to eliminate insects, which harm the soil fertility and ultimately contaminate our water sources to runoff. An economic system of oil and gas and industry that destroys, as I said earlier, wetlands and pollutes our oceans and harms our wildlife and sea life. My friends, over the past several years, as I've learned and embraced a theology that is liberatory, a theology that pays special attention to the lived experience of marginalized people, to disinvested communities who live near landfalls on brownfield sites, communities with non-existent tree canopies. My friends, I believe that scripture invites us to be compassionate stewards of trees, plants, Forests, animals, our ecosystem. From Genesis to Revelation, from the early church to the present day, there are vivid examples 
of God and the church's love of and care for and delight in this beautiful planet. And right now, we need more than ever a theology and a faith that is robust enough not only to speak to the issues of personal responsibility and morality, but to speak to issues of systemic injustice, mass incarceration, poverty, environmental racism. We need more than personal holiness. We need social holiness. I want a faith that can speak to the complexities of our historical record and current day policies that harm our environment. We were meant to be protectors. We were meant to be cultivators and servants of the land, not its exploiters. We were meant to maintain the boundaries of God's system with which benefit all, not to create systems that benefit a few at the expense of the rest. Mm -mm. You know, see, my mama taught me to read, Mama Briscoe. Well, her and LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow, <laughs> which I absolutely adore and love, and the, 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 ring, the theme song is my ringtone on my phone today. <laughs> but I see uh, Mama taught me how to read. And I remember just the books growing up. And my friend, see, as I started reading about a brown-skinned, nappy-headed, Afro-Asiatic, Palestinian Jew named Jesus, who lived during the first century under the brutality of Roman occupation and colonization of his homeland, a homeland subjected to some of the most oppressive forms of psychological, physiological, and economic terror. I started reading about how he cared not just about my soul, but about the systems that are consequential to my well-being. I started reading about a man who wasn't just trying to get me to the pearly gates to meet St. Peter, but wanted to bring justice and mercy and flourishing and wholeness to me and my community right here and right now. You know, I think Dr. King, Dr. King said it best the night before he was murdered in Memphis, Tennessee, in April of 1968. He said the night before he died, we got some difficult days ahead of us. And he's right. He was right in 68 and it still rings true in 22. Our current predicament is similar to the prediction that the Allies in World War II, in the 1930, early, late 30s, early 40s, would lose the Second World War unless they mobilized all of their efforts towards stopping the rising fascist menace. And mobilizing the Allies in World War II was relatively straightforward. The enemy was clearly identified, and we were the good guys. On the contrary, Climate change, what we're dealing with right now, whew, not so easy. Climate change is slow. It's insidious, partly invisible. We're the enemy, <laughs> right? Our Western consumeristic, individualistic, materialistic lifestyle is not sustainable, equitable, and just. The reality is man-made climate change, my friends, is not just a policy issue. It's a theological and anthropological problem. It's an anthropological, anthropological problem because these 
Americans' concept of these deep who we are and who God is. When we respond with approval to an advertisement for an expensive gas-guzzling car, telling us that we deserve the very best, we are implicitly acknowledging that privileged individualism is our assumption about human nature. When we say that God is only interested in spiritual, not secular matters, we are implicitly confessing that we believe in a distant and uninvolved God. But folks, it is precisely this false conventional view of God and ourselves that permit the continuing destruction of our planet and its inhabitants. The environmental crisis is a theological problem, a problem coming from views of God and ourselves that encourage and prevent destructive and unjust actions to this planet. This sense of isolated and hyper-individualism is considered by most privileged Western human beings simply the way things are. So what I'm suggesting is that who God is and who we are must be central questions. If we hope to change our actions in the direction of just and sustainable planetary living, the problem, my friends, lies in our theologies and our anthropologies. And my friends, what we need right now is an ecological theology to sweep across the religious and spiritual folks in this country. A theology that encompasses a communitarian view that sees our well-being as interdependent with all other life forms and adjust, makes adjustments to ensure that resources are distributed in a just and sustainable way. You know, I'm teaching a course uh, this semester at William Peace, uh, Introduction to the Old Testament. Uh, and folks, goodness gracious, you, when you study Mosaic law, the writings of the Hebrew prophets, the poetry of Proverbs and Psalms, the grieving of Ecclesiastes and Lamentations, the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament are obsessed with the topic of just economics. There are over 2,200 verses in the Bible that deal with poverty and justice. And to borrow a quote from Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, the renowned public theologian right here in my hometown in Durham, we Christians oftentimes major on the minor and minor on the major. Why is the Bible so concerned with economics, with money? The answer involves one's definition of salvation. If salvation is only about the redemption of individuals from their sins so that they might live eternally in another world, then economics on earth is not a central religious concern. And oh, oh, oh my goodness, boy, oh boy, if I had a nickel for every time I heard another Christian or a pastor or some faith leader say to me, now, Darrell, hold on. God doesn't care about all that political stuff. He just wants your heart. Darrell, now listen, mm -mm -mm. we don't need another civil rights leader. We need a pastor. Darrell, that climate, that climate stuff, wow, oh, stuff just happens the way it is. Focus on the Bible. If I had a nickel for every time I heard these phrases, I would have a nice, heavy little piggy bank. But my friends, if salvation, what if salvation means more? What if it's about the well-being of creation here and now? If that's the case, my friends, then economics, just economics, becomes a very important religious concern. And unfortunately, what I've seen so much is a 
privatized, spiritualized lens in which we see salvation that leaves us free to collect and hoard and use for our benefit all the goods we can get a hold of, but still claiming we're religious in our personal lives. My friends, as climatologists, policymakers, legislative directors, volunteers, we have to continue to build bridges and make inroads with religious folk and advocate for an ecological theology that is about the just sharing among all of basic needed resources and fashion geared toward long-term sustainability. We need an ecological theology that undergirds ecological economic models, folks, that guides the allocation of resources. This is what is needed to avoid excessive climate change because right now we live in a society with a neoclassical economic model that rules our global market, that says that the good life is reserved for the few who can control the most resources for themselves with justice and sustainability being secondary or tertiary matters. And my friends, when the three major societal institutions of religion, economics, and government all agree on a basic anthropology, one that focuses on and supports and celebrates the needs and wants of individuals, a powerful statement is being made. Global warming is not just another important issue that we need to deal with, folks. It's not simply an issue of management. It demands a radical paradigm shift and who we think we are and who we think God is. We need a theological paradigm shift that moves us into acknowledging the intrinsic value of each and every creature on earth. This theological paradigm shift should challenge us to focus on the well-being and the health of the environment. We need an anthropological paradigm shift because frankly, we're dealing with a spiritual condition, pride how we interact with each other, and how we interact with our environment. We need to identify our pride and admit the truth about ourselves. And climate change demands that we turn our eyes to the world, to space, to place, to the concrete. It demands that we ask questions about how to live within the particularities and limitations of our planet, rather than speculating all the time about why we are here. Hmm. Hmm. And hey, listen, I get it. I'm all for philosophy. But dadgummit, we need action. <laughs> when it comes to our climate, we need action and we need it now. Instead of focusing mainly on the why questions, we've got to focus on where we are and what the world is like and where we fit into it. My friends, we have to continue to advocate for our youth when it comes to education. We have to fight for subject matter that brings awareness to climate justice and our school systems. We have to advocate for just systems and structures through just policy at all levels. I am encouraged with the wins that we are receiving federally, but we've got to remember to keep the spotlight on the local and the state. We've got to work to ensure that national energy policies are just and sustainable. We have to be aware of land use, air and water quality, tree canopies, and black and brown communities. And my friends, we cannot forget the neighborhood. We've got to get in the neighborhood. We got to be for the neighborhood. We cannot come in here with this white savior uh, 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 complex 
thinking that we know better. We've got to meet with Uncle Buck, Grandma Ann. We got to sit on the porch of Auntie uh, uh, Auntie Tenny, and we got to connect with folks on the ground and invest in them, in their communities, and educate them. Thorne Oakenshield said it best. Had the aim of men been true that day, much would have been different. I pray that in 50 years, we don't have to say that. I pray that our aim would be true. Our focus would be clear and our drive and, and determination would be relentless. My friends, again, I'm Dr. Harold Durrell Briscoe. Thank you so much for listening and would love to connect with you all. Uh, please follow me on Instagram at, at Dr. Briscoe. Uh, just so excited about uh, this opportunity here and uh, thankful for what you all do. God bless you. See you soon. Hi, everyone. I'll read the questions if you need uh, to Dr. Briscoe. And Craig asks, um, Dr. Briscoe, wonderful talk. I'm trying to reach, connect with people that are different from me politically. How can I speak the truth in love to them? A couple, two things. Um, give them grace and remember where you used to be, right? A lot of times we do the work, we read the books, we attend the conferences. And so we had this kind of elevated level of knowledge and about the issues. But remember that you came from somewhere. We all started somewhere. Everyone's on their journey. Um, and, and so just, just give, give them grace. Also, um, pray for them. Uh, if you're religious, um, if not, think about them. Uh, but remember that they're human beings and made in the image of God. And, uh, 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 and, and, and uh, my friend Don, Don says it best. Uh, they're allies. They just don't know it yet. And so we, it takes some prophetic imagination to, you know, hey, to think, to believe that one day these folks are going to be allies, you know. So work with that future in mind. Thank you. And then Bob asks, uh, what specific economic changes does a communitarian theology suggest are most important to achieve? It depends on kind of what level you're talking about. If you're looking at um, kind of a neighborhood level in a city, uh, what does it look like for you to advocate for sustainable energy policies? Uh, focusing on the power grids, things like uh, um, uh, it, it, it going on informational programs to invest in uh, energy, sound energy policies. I think a communitarian view can also look like education, taking the initiative in your neighborhood, in your community to educate the public, uh, to advocate for systems. One of the things that we do as a church once a quarter is uh, called Letter Writing to the Incarcerated. We screen a documentary on criminal justice reform. We have a time where we pray for people who, um, who are uh, incarcerated and we write them letters. Now, sometimes we'll write letters, we'll write letters to folks who are incarcerated in our 
uh, criminal justice system in Durham, North Carolina. We also write uh, letters to legislators and power brokers to advocate for just and humane policies in our criminal justice system. And so it, 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 it has this duality of education, but also action. What would it look like for you when it comes to a communitarian view to host opportunities to not only educate, but to advocate on issues of disparities, particularly when it comes to um, ecological issues? Thank you. And Clara or Debbie asks, one of the really challenging things when working with a wide umbrella is the different levels where everyone is and catering to everyone. So many new people want to jump into take, taking action when they haven't taken the time to understand their own journey with their world's problematic systems. They need to ask answers for the 101 questions and assumptions. We're all the human race. I don't see color. People who work hard will get their rewards, end quote. When we answer these 101 questions, some of the people further along in the journey get bored and some of the BIPOC folks who are justifiably tired of repeating these conversations get frustrated. Why are these questions still being asked? asked and why are we still putting up with people this year who need this these questions answered? Why are we still centering ignorant people? That's a great question. Um, I feel you on that. I think Nipsey, Nipsey Hussle, the late, the great uh, urban poet, Nipsey Hussle said it best. Uh, the marathon continues. What I mean by that, the marathon continues. It is a marathon, folks. No, we're tired. I understand. Uh, BIPOC folks having to have these conversations, uh, having to consistently put ourselves out there having to deal with, shoot, not only microaggression, macroaggression, like just pure aggression from some folks. It is tiring. You got to look out for yourself. Number one, I would suggest self-care. Be intentional, be relentless about it. Find avenues, places, and spaces that give you joy. You have got to fill up to pour yourself out but only you can control uh, what type of care you receive. And so I know that's really basic and really trivial, but yo, like, it's like, it's mad true. Um, I, I, uh, I have a room, this room that I'm in right now, it's called Sidebar. It's my jazz lounge and library and study. Um, I've got like, you know, 50 different jazz records uh, in here. I'm a big student of jazz history. Um, but this room is my sanctuary. I mean, shoot, folks, even Superman has a fortress of solitude. If Superman had to go away somewhere, then we do too. And in this room, I just started populating and putting everything on the wall that gives me life. I have over 65 different indoor plants here. It's like my urban jungle. But I come in here, I recharge, and I do what I can do to pour myself out. You guys have got to look out because it is exhausting. Again, give themselves, give them grace. We all start somewhere, but I'm telling you, please be intentional about your rest, your emotional detachment and care. Thank you. 
Amir says, great inspiring words, Dr. Briscoe. How can we get frontline Latinx, brown, and black communities' voices to be more heard for more urgent climate action and be prioritized in moving faster to act? We, we need to work through uh, uh, black and, and, and Latin, Latin churches. Uh, we need to work with denomina denominational leaders. We need to work with senior pastors. We need to work with deacon boards, elder boards. Um, that might require you to be a bit incarnational, right? I mean, I, I believe in an incarnational religion, that this deity embodied flesh and lived among us, grew tired, exhausted, had to deal with macro microaggressions, was executed and murdered by the state, was arrested under the criminal justice system of Greco-Roman culture. We, 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 we've got to be incarnational. We've got to pitch our tent, meaning incarnate, like pitch our tent among those who we are trying to reach. And so um, I, I, I do believe that is, is, is important working through faith communities um, when it comes to the issue of uh, climate change. We have eight more minutes for questions if everyone else wants to submit any. Um, Ashruth asks, what is your favorite part of the book, There's a Storm Coming? Oh, thank you. Oh, well, I have it right here. That's <laughs> horrible. Shameless, shameless book. No, um, you know, it's so funny. Uh, it, 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 you almost forget what you wrote. Like, you're like, wait a minute, like, what did I do? Um, I think the, the the part three. So there's four different. There's a, it's 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 a it's a model um, with four different R's: realization, readiness, responsiveness, renewal. And realization is all about education. What do we need to be aware of? Readiness is all about you know. And I basically with this book, I took principles and strategies from the field of climate change adaptation and natural disaster resiliency, and um, and, and drew parallels between climate change and social political climate change, between hurricanes and what I call racialized storms and racialized crises. Uh, George Floyd, Freddie, uh, um, Freddie Gray, uh, Sandra Bland, uh, Breonna Taylor. My favorite part is the responsiveness section. So there's four, realization, readiness, responsiveness, renewal. Responsiveness, and basically with that section, I just draw insights from the Hebrew prophetic tradition. You know, the, 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 the prophets in scripture were just some scary men and women. They were weird. But they spoke truth to power and challenged the Israel and, and Judaic monarchy to make decisions that were just and fair to the marginalized. Major prophets, the minor prophets, I mean, you read Habakkuk, Nahum, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, was all about calling the people to live with each other in a fair and just manner. And I love that. Uh, and so that's my my uh, my favorite part, just because I feel challenged to speak up, and it's hard. Some of them were executed, some of them were were ostracized, exiled, but the word needed to be spoken. So the prophetic tradition was my favorite part of the book. Awesome. Last question. Mary asks, will you comment on the Laudato Si shared by the Pope, which seems to be ignored by many Catholic priests? 
Um, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of knowledge uh, regarding that. And so I'm, that's just outside of my expertise. So. Yes, and Nadine asks, are you familiar with Unitarian Universalism? Uh, at UU services, you'll hear about the interconnectedness of all beings' responsibility to care for the earth and its inhabitants, environmental justice, aiding choices that are gentler on the earth, inequality, and the complex uh, history of our country. Unitarian Universalism has a history in Christianity, but has evolved to much broader and inclusive. It has, and they are doing phenomenal work. They have led the way when it comes to a theology of inclusion, of, 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 of fighting and standing against various aspects of systemic injustices and disparities that exist. And so my brothers and sisters in that particular faith tradition have been doing the work and have been leading the way. We, uh, I wouldn't consider myself an evangelical, but uh, we in, in, in other denominations would be wise to listen, pay attention, and follow in their direction, their lead. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.